Well, good evening, church. Good to have you again for APD at Cedarview. Ask Pastor Don. I have two questions that came in that I'm going to try and get, I'll try and get through both of them uh, fairly quickly. Here's the first question. Pastor Don, we've been hearing about the second coming of Jesus for years. Some people have made a lot of false predictions. Can we know when his coming is at hand? And if we can know, what are some of the sure signs? Well, I think it's important to start. I think it's important to recognize what we can know and what we can't. Um, We can't know the day or the hour. Jesus tells us that in Matthew 24, 13. We can't know the day, the hour. So it, it zooms into some pretty fine timelines there. But we are told that we can be alert for some signs of the season of his coming, when it's drawing near. I get that from 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 4. Paul says, now concerning the times, plural, and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay? Now that's, a lot of Christians have the idea that Paul says that's for everybody. Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. There were films, movies, everything else. But that's not really what he's saying. Verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. So, so Paul says generally the world's going to be all caught up in all sorts of things and they're just going to suddenly get surprised by the second coming of, of Jesus. It's going to going to catch them totally unawares, but he says, you, you believers, that's not you. You can be aware of the times and the seasons. Jesus actually says the same thing. We can't know the day or the hour, but he says there's no excuse for not seeing the end drawing near. I get that in Matthew 24, 31 to 34. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. I know there's pretty competent scholars that that relate this more through the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD than the second coming. I don't know how they do that. I just, I can't see it. 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that the end is near. It is at the very gates. And I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And a lot of people have trouble with that last sentence. They think that this generation refers to Jesus speaking to his disciples. But that's not what he's saying. He's talking about this generation. That's the generation that sees these things happening. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Gather his elect from the four winds. The generation that witnesses those things, that generation won't pass away. So, Paul and Jesus 
can't know the day, the hour, you can't pinpoint it exactly. But believers who are alert and watchful and longing for his appearing, they can know, they can see things developing. They won't be surprised. They can sense that the time is coming. It's getting close. They see things start to unfold. Well, how would they know? Well, one of the certain signs that Paul identifies for believers is the manifestation of of the Antichrist. I know a lot of weird things get said about the Antichrist, but it's still a New Testament term, and I want to just look at it for a minute. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 5, Paul writing to Christians, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, notice that at the same time, we ask you, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Don't be alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Hasn't come yet. Okay, how would they know that? Well, he's going he's to tell them. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, that day is the coming of the Lord and are, gathered un, are being gathered unto him. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So Paul... He assumes that the church will still be here when this, 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 this person arises. The church will still be here because they'll see it. So there's no sense in Paul telling them that this is a sign if the church is already gone and raptured off the scene. They'll be here. They'll see the rise of this individual. Now, there are different things that the New Testament says about, about the spirit of Antichrist in the world, many Antichrists in the world, and the Antichrist yet to come. In terms of the spirit of Antichrist, it's in 1 John 4, verse 3. Paul says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming. So there's there's something coming, and now is in the world already. So there's this spirit of Antichrist. Any... any, um, Religious authority, any voice claiming to be a godly voice that denies God the Son, come in the flesh. By the way, that's most of the world's religions. Paul says that's the spirit of Antichrist. He says that's in, John rather, sorry, that's in the world already. It's to come, sure enough, but it's also the spirit of it is already here. Then John says more in 1 John two eighteen and 19. Children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so there's still one coming. So now many Antichrists have come, have come already, even in John's day. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So this this all ties together. The spirit of Antichrist has always been at work, drawing people away from Christ. There have been many antichrists, people who have arisen in power, claiming all sorts of divine authority. And then there's the antichrist yet to come. And both Paul and John seem to say, look for that. Be aware of that. You'll see that coming. There's one other, I think, sure sign. Jesus talked about the 
worldwide proclamation of the gospel in Matthew 24, 14. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Then the end will come. I take nations to to mean more than our traditional understanding of like countries. I think Jesus has in mind people groups. He's picturing nationalities, ethnicities. Of these people groups, Peter said God wasn't willing that any of them should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We are closer to reaching the nations than ever before, true enough, but there's still so much work to be done. Watch for this, the rise of Antichrist. Not the spirit of Antichrist that's always been, but a, but a particular manifestation of it. Watch for the declaration of the gospel to all the people groups of the world. Those, I think, are the safest signs, as far as I can see. You can speculate about a lot of things, but if you're looking for things that the Bible seems to just anchor on, those two things seem to be important. I hope that's helpful. Here's the second question. We are constantly told that salvation is by grace through faith and not the result of human good works. And then they quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the questioner continues, what about James' words in James 2.24? And the, the, the questioner quotes the verse, you see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Pastor Don, isn't this just a contradiction? No, I don't think it is. But you have to take James' words and you have to read them in, in context. I, I won't take the time, but on your own, look at James 2, uh, 14 to 26. James isn't saying, you show me your faith and I'll show me my works. No. He's saying, you say you have faith. And I want to show you my faith by my works. And then you say, well, my faith is just in my heart, Pastor Don. It's just in, it's in my heart. And, and to that, James says, well, the devil has that kind of faith. He believes in God. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So, so here's what that means. We know that biblical faith must engage the Christian in a deeper way than just mental data. Genuine faith, true, it really does require intellectual understanding. It can never be less than that, but it has to be more than that. It, it also moves the heart to, to love God. It results in a, in a motivated will. And I'd like you to look at a verse of scripture with me. Get your Bible and look at John 3, 36. Because this is where John talks about what it means to believe in Jesus. 
John records the words. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So he's talking about belief. Believing in the Son. Believing in Jesus. Now, that verse does not read the way I would expect it to read. I would have expected there to be some kind of a symmetry in the verse. I would expect John to have recorded the words like this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But he doesn't do that. Did you notice? It's almost as though he knows how easy it might be for readers to misunderstand what is meant by that word belief. And so he makes his meaning clear as he records these words by changing the word that he uses the second time around. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So, just to be clear, when John talks about obeying the Son, he doesn't mean keeping rules to earn the Son's favor. That's why he tells us first, it's just a matter of believing. The obedience that he mentions the second time is not just bare works to earn salvation. It's obedience rooted in confidence, in belief in the Son's atoning grace. It's the obedience of love. Not the obedience of mere duty. But make no mistake about it. Belief that is careless about obedience is evidence that saving faith isn't present at all. I have, I have just... Another important thought about the nature of biblical faith, belief, and the way it gets developed in our lives. We'll do this on, a, on a, another uh, APD on, on, on Sunday night. But here's an important principle. I think we need to remember that like all spiritual growth, the movement from little faith to increased faith is not an instantaneous one-step leap. It doesn't happen that way. You are involved in the development of deeper faith and confidence in God, but only in a sowing aspect. God brings the fruit. So faith grows as you set your heart on God, not as you set your heart on your faith. I want to close with this. I think... This is the best New Testament picture. It comes from the Apostle Paul as to how faith gets formed, fed, developed till it starts to transform our lives into the likeness of Christ. Though the word faith itself isn't mentioned, the process of faith is what Paul's describing in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Look at these words. And we all, Christians... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. That's what we do, the beholding. The Holy Spirit does not do the beholding for us. There's the glory of the Lord. 
It's here. It's in the body of Christ. It's in times of prayer. Beholding. You have to do that. We, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, here's what, here's what the Holy Spirit does. Are being transformed into the same image. But here's the gradual process. From one degree, one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We do the beholding. We do the feeding. We do the nourishing. That's our part in the unfolding of God's glorious transformation of our lives. The Holy Spirit turns beholding into becoming. One degree of glory to another. So we're saved by faith, not by works. But the result of faith is the increasing desire to behold the glory of the Lord. And the Spirit brings transformation. We do the beholding. The Spirit brings about the becoming. God bless the church. Love one another.